episode 111 of the Big Rhetorical Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Woods. On this episode of the podcast, I chat with Dr. Abir Ward as a part of the Big Rhetorical Podcast Emerging Scholar Series. My project in specific is a very interesting project, Charles, because it started in 2019 when I was at this conference called the Digital Humanities uh, Conference organi- that was organized that year by the American University of Beirut. And I bumped into the couple of our librarians at the university and they told me, they said, can you believe that this author and this Lebanese author and this Lebanese author do not have Wikipedia pages about them. I don't know how this com- conversation started, but when they found out that I was teaching composition courses, they said, we've been trying to get more instructors and lecturers and professors involved and in working with us on a couple of project, uh, projects. And they mentioned this and I said, that's impossible. How can these important Lebanese figures not have any articles about them? And so I went and did my search and of course, you know, there was nothing about them. And so I thought, I need to do something about this. This is unacceptable. We can't not be on the Wikipedia map. Dr. Abir Ward was born and raised in Monrovia, Liberia to Lebanese Druze parents and lived on three continents before the age of 20. As a multinational and a multilingual, Dr. Ward describes herself as, quote, multilocal, unquote, to borrow Ty Selassie's words. She taught first-year composition, English for international business, and technical writing for engineering at the American University of Beirut. There, she led the editorial work of Pages Apart, a 700-page homegrown academic reader used for teaching English, and she founded Turath, a social justice initiative engaged in the politics of representation. She helped create articles on Wikipedia about notable Arab women, and this work has garnered over 20 million views. Dr. Ward recently joined Boston University's College of Arts and Sciences writing program where she will work on social, linguistic, and environmental justice initiatives. I hope you enjoy the interview. What's your name and your institution and your role there? Who are you and what do you do? So my name is Adir Ward, but when I came to the U.S. many, many years ago, I, w- I, was, uh, I became Abir Ward, <laughs> which is fine, but it was such a disappointment for my father because my name, Adir Ward, in Arabic means fragrance of roses. And then, of course, when I arrived in the U.S. and I joined the university for my first degree, I I became a beer. And people made so much fun of my name, like a beer, a bottle of beer. I get all sorts of nicknames like Corona and Tecate. And and, uh, yeah, so my father was very disappointed when, when when I came to the U.S. and I 
was turned from or reduced from fragrance of roses to a beer. I was teaching at the American University of Beirut, AUB, for a number of years. Uh, and I just finished my PhD in composition and applied linguistics from Indiana University of Pennsylvania, uh, defended December 1st, 2021, and graduated in May 2022, and got a position, a teaching position at Boston University with the College of Arts and Sciences writing program uh, to work with English, English language learners and in specific uh, work on um, justice initiatives. Uh, my main interest is linguistic justice or injustice and how it relates to every single facet of our lives. So you start at Boston University in fall 2022, right? I do, yes. That's exciting. Let's go back a little bit. When you mentioned coming to the U.S., when did you come to the U.S.? Uh, I first came to the U.S. when I was 19 years old, uh, and I was in California in the Bay Area. I joined San Jose State University as an undergrad, uh, and I studied English there. Uh, after I graduated, I started a master's program, uh, but then shortly after my daughter was born, uh, or actually right before she turned three, I decided to move back to Lebanon, where I had uh, previously lived. I, I was born and raised in West Africa, Liberia. This is where I grew up, uh, in Monrovia in specific. Uh, but then my parents, uh, so I was born to Lebanese parents. Uh, and I moved to Lebanon uh, as, a, as a teenager, and I continued my studies uh, there and then went to the U.S. Uh, and met my uh, ex-husband, uh, was, was married, lived there for a number of years in California. But then I decided to uh, move to Lebanon when my daughter, right before my daughter turned three, because I wanted her to learn Arabic. It was such an important point for me in, in raising her and in, in giving her or equipping her in such a way where she can, I, in, in, this is what I thought back then, that she can face the world better if she knew more <laughs> languages. So I wanted her to go back there and, and uh, grow up there. Um, so we moved and uh, lived there for a number of years. And now I'm coming back to the US. Actually, I came back for my PhD but it was a uh, summer only program at Indiana University of Pennsylvania, which was great. Uh, but now I'm, I'm moving back here for good and my daughter is joining me. That's exciting. Um, let's unpack it a little bit. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so you were born to Lebanese parent, parents in Monrovia and, and, and grew up in Liberia. Okay, I've lived in like America you know what I mean? the whole time. Everybody knows that. Uh, What's it like to like grow up where you grew up, right? What kind of things did you do? What kind of things uh, did your family do? But also, how did your experiences lead you to this career path, right? So uh, growing up in Liberia was very different from any other experience I think uh, I would have been able to get had I grown up uh, in, in 
Lebanon or in uh, or in the U.S., for example, uh, Liberia is is very different. Liberia has a lot of ties to the U.S., very close ties, but Liberia is also a very uh, it's, it's still a beautiful, uh, authentic uh, African place in, in so many different ways. Uh, I'm not sure. I haven't. I haven't answered this question before. I've never been asked this question before, so I've, I haven't really thought about this. So I'm, I'm thinking uh, about this as I'm answering this. But what I can tell you is that uh, I did things that no other kids I've, uh, or no other, no, no people I've come in, in contact with have gone through. Like for example, experiencing the kind of, summers or winters that we have in Liberia, where when it starts to rain, it doesn't, we don't see raindrops. Uh, rods come down from the sky, <laughs> rods of water. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. It's a completely different experience. And then, of course, everything floods. So you don't want to be living on the first floor. You want to be uh, high up because when it floods, it's, it's, it's crazy. And then the kind of sicknesses or illnesses that you, that you uh, have over there are just different. So instead of the flu or the cold, you have malaria. <laughs> or, and this is something that you live with or grow up uh, with. And it's, uh, it's considered very, very normal. But it's also the experience of the culture, the food, uh, uh, the, the harshness of the environment, but at the same time, the beauty of everything around you. Colors are so different and vivid. Uh, one of the things that I have, that one of, in one of my experiences, um, when, I, when I traveled to Hawaii, one thing that I thought when I first arrived in Hawaii, and this, I'm sure people would disagree with me, is that I thought, hmm, these photos that I've seen of Hawaii must have been color enhanced because it's not as vivid or as bright as you think it is looking at pictures but then in Liberia it's very different the soil is so rich it's it's dark orange uh and and um and then the trees the richness of the the the, the green colors around you is just unbelievable and it can uh be almost assaulting to the senses. Uh, you don't grow up having cats and dogs. You grow up having uh, exotic uh, pets uh, because you know your father decided um, to bring uh, a, you know a, a, a goat or uh, parrots uh, or an African greys or uh, or maybe a chimp because we had somebody who worked for my father who had a chimp with him. Uh, and he would bring him around. And so I didn't have the luxury of having a cat because uh, we, we did try that one time. And um, cat, uh, cats are usually eaten uh, over there. So it was captured by somebody and just disappeared. So <laughs> I just couldn't keep such pets. Uh, um, it's, so it's, it's, a it's out of this world. This is all I have to say. <laughs> it sounds like you miss it. It sounds like I, I do. It's very much part of who I am and my identity. I do consider myself to be as in, in equal parts, uh, uh, Liberian, uh, Lebanese Druze, uh, and this is my uh, you know, cultural background, uh, and, uh, and American uh, at the same time. 
in equal parts. Or in, I, so to use the words of Thais Selassie, I consider myself to be multi-local rather than multinational. Uh, definitely multi-local, multilingual. How this has affected my career path, it has in many different ways. Uh, growing up with the different languages, growing up around Vi, which is considered one of the oldest languages in the world, uh, uh, growing up uh, um, in a um, in a place where where you witnessed a lot of injustices, and so. Uh, as I revisited my identity, as I was working on my dissertation, I had the honor of working with uh, Dr. David Hanauer, a phenomenal human being. And he made me write an autoethnography to study my life experiences and see where that leads me in order to uh, somehow outline my research for the next 10 years. And I did that. I, I I tell you, Charles, this has this was one of the most difficult experiences I've had. Where I, I cried so much just revisiting my uh, life experiences, the most influential works I've read, etc., and putting all that together and looking at it as data. Um, and three things emerged: uh, language, power, identity. And so I knew these are the parameters that will define all the work that I do all work that I do now and in the future. And this was very helpful in, in, uh, in getting me to do what I worked on for my dissertation. I've got a couple of questions about the job market, but before we get there, let's talk a little bit about your dissertation project. I want to read the title for everyone. The Literacy Publishing Practices of Multilingual Science Researchers and the challenges, burdens of publishing in Lebanon. I want you to tell listeners a little bit about what your dissertation project was. But also, now that you have completed this project, how do you feel about, I'm sorry, listeners, that was just a very humanities question, right? How do you feel? But <laughs> How do you feel about working with autoethnography as a method or methodology even? Uh, yeah, I, I don't think I did autoethnography per se, but let me tell you a little bit about, uh, uh, because th this led to another project, an, an autoethnographic project uh, as, as, a, as a byproduct. But the reason I got, um, I hopped on board when it, when it comes to studying the literacy practices of multilingual science researchers was the fact that Lebanon is a barren land when it comes to research. Okay. And just uh, shortly before I embarked on this, a book came out that studies the literacy practices and publishing practices of multilingual science researchers around the world. And every single region was included in that book, save for the Arab region. So when it comes to, to this field, we are so behind. And so uh, it's both interesting and frightening to know that when you study something in relation to applied linguistics, composition, and the Arab world, uh, you are embarking upon this journey almost alone, uh, where we have you know, a few applied linguists in Lebanon um, and a few who work in, in the field, 
uh, almost no work uh, that you can rely on or spring from. Uh, and uh, uh, it's exciting because you're, you're, you become a pioneer in the field, but at the same time, it's very frightening because you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> like, am I doing this right? Am I, um, uh, you know, uh, yeah, in, in essence, am I doing this right? And uh, this question came up so many, so many times uh, during the process, but I was lucky enough to have uh, David Hanauer direct my dissertation work. And I was also very lucky to be in touch with the people, the pioneers in the field, or the people who have worked extensively in, in the field, namely uh, uh, Mary, J., Mary Jane Curry. Uh, she's uh, she's phenomenal, and uh, I'm I'm still working. I'm working with her as uh, she's she's my coach right now. So she's also uh, helping me after I've defended my dissertation. I felt that I need some some guidance uh, because uh, uh, you know I need some someone who is a seasoned researcher to help guide me, and she's she's been doing that. She's been phenomenal so uh uh yeah so to go back to uh my dissertation i i chose it because i felt there is a very much very much, first of all it very much relates to language power and identity mm -hmm. uh the the three uh cornerstones of what i love working with uh and at the same time there is very much a need there uh and i was in a place and at a time where this was a, a conversation that we needed to have. I was working with uh, the Center of Research, the Center, uh, the, sorry, Clinical Research Institute at the American University of Beirut. And I was uh, uh, also working with uh, the School of Nursing uh, on how to, how to write in the field because the writing in the disciplines uh, as, as a subfield uh, is, is somehow underdeveloped in Lebanon and needs a lot of work. Uh, also, what brought me to this is my background as a literacy broker, because I used to edit articles, science articles for scientists and help them uh, get them ready for publication. So this, this was also very helpful. Um, I'm not sure what else <laughs> to add uh, on, on the topic, but, but I can tell you that so many of the findings that I came across, I mean, so much aligned with whatever was said before by the various uh, uh, researchers in the field in relation to uh, literacy practices and publishing practices of uh, multilingual science researchers in different countries. Uh, so previous research has shown, for example, that the burden is extra for the multilingual or the uh, native, I know this is not a term that we use uh, anymore, but the, the non-native English speaker or a science researcher has a 20 to 25% more burden on, mm -hmm. on them. Uh, to publish, uh, and uh, uh, this was quantified by Karen Englander and David Hanauer uh, in a study where they compared uh, data from different countries, and they were able to quantify it. 
Um, and on the other hand, I, I wanted to see how this all applies to the multilingual science researcher in Lebanon, uh, especially because we very much like everybody else, we're very much, we're fascinated with science and uh, uh, we understand that in order to, um, um, you know, um, make a place for ourselves as researchers that we need to publish in science. And so, um, so I, I really wanted to study that and uh, the, my results were, were fascinating. At least I was fascinated by them. <laughs> <laughs> so was my committee. Um, A-U-B, the yeah. American University of Beirut. That's where you were teaching previously. How long were you at that institution? I was there for uh, over a little over eight years. Oh, wow. So in a long time then, uh, I think. Uh, what types of courses that you did you teach at AUB? I taught all sorts of courses at the American University of Beirut. So I was teaching first year composition, uh, advanced academic writing. I was also teaching at the uh, EMBA program the executive master's business administration program. I was teaching communication uh, skills courses, but also um, uh, executive communication uh, uh, courses. I was giving trainings in uh, uh, business communication, English for international business. And I was also teaching engineering students uh, writing in the technical writing in their fields. Goodness, that's a lot. Which <laughs> classes did you enjoy teaching the most and why at AUB? I love public speaking courses. Uh, I love giving these workshops, especially because I am petrified of public speaking, oh. <laughs> which makes me a much better trainer uh, because I recognize the difficulties that come with public speaking and what it takes to overcome these difficulties. So I speak from experience. Just like when I'm teaching the multilingual uh, student or the English language learner how to write, uh, I know what difficulties they face, how it is more challenging to learn how to write in English in specific. And you know what? People sometimes think that, uh, yeah, but I have learned a different language, so I will be able to teach uh, writing in English. And I recognize the difficulties that come with learning a language and learning how to write in this language. But no, let me tell you something. It's very different from, the, from this end when you are learning English as a second language. Uh, and trying to teach somebody else certain skills and trying to show them that it's doable and you can they can do it. Uh, so it's uh, it makes a difference when you've been through this experience. You can tell the student then, you know what? I know exactly what you feel like. I know exactly uh, uh, what challenges uh, feel like. And I can tell you, you can do it. If I can do it, you can do it. And it makes it makes a difference. Now, before teaching at the American University of Beirut, I did teach at the Lebanese American University. And there mm. I had a completely different experience where I was able to teach literature courses as well. Uh, my background is in literature. So my first degree and my master's were in literature uh, before shifting to applied linguistics and composition. So I was also able to teach some literature courses, and I loved doing that. Truly enjoyed teaching literature, uh, but definitely find myself right now in the right field. 
I also hope that um, me being at Boston University will allow me to continue to expand uh, on these uh, skills and, and go back and, and, and teach uh, writing classes uh, in, uh, in not just, uh, uh, you know, from an, uh, from an applied linguistics perspective or composition perspective, but also from a, a literature uh, angle uh, as well. So many people I talk to in our field um, do have that background in literature. My master's degree is in literature as well. Uh-huh. Um, and everyone I've talked to says something similar along the lines of, but I'm in the right field now. <laughs> um, let's talk a little bit about something different, though. So over the last few years, you have been teaching at AUB, completing a PhD program at IUPUI, raising a daughter, and you're on the and you were on the job market as an international student. And leading a few initiatives as well. At the <laughs> yes. And so much more that I didn't even just name. <laughs> yes. So <laughs> can you talk a little bit about things you learned being a job candidate, an international job candidate? And advice for international candidates going onto the market in the future? Well, let me tell you that what added to the challenge was the fact that there was COVID and there was this bottleneck. Uh, So many graduates from 2020, 2021, and 2022 were on the market at the same time, uh, on the job market uh, at the same time. And so it was more challenging to compete with these people uh, uh, because I am trying to access the the center from from the outside. It's a lot more challenging. And I heard that for so many different people who said it's going to be more difficult for you than anybody else. So um, one thing that worked to my advantage was the fact that we had um, COVID, unfortunately. Uh, this this sounds, uh, I mean, it it was a, a, ch- a challenge, not only a challenge, it was catastrophic to so many people. But what I tried to do with that was see how much time or more time it afforded me yeah. because I was no longer commuting. I was, I was teaching remotely as difficult as that was. I was lucky enough to have been prepared at uh, IUP um by having uh had a course on online teaching and so i used everything that i learned in that course and applied it to my own teaching right away <laughs> so uh as i shifted i was very comfortable having come with a lot of teaching experience before starting the phd program i um um, at times, you know, I, we would get comments from our professors saying, you know how to do this better than we do because you've been teaching for far longer uh, than we have. Uh, but it's uh, it was amazing how much, uh, I mean, I was lucky. I was lucky because uh, I was, uh, uh, in a sense, I found myself with all the time that I needed to be working on this. But let me tell you something, being on the job market is a full-time job in itself. Uh, And then something has to give. My daughter, I'm lucky she's uh, 19 years old. So she's (laughs) 
<laughs> she's uh, somehow self-sufficient in a sense and so uh, she was she was able to understand when I was not as available as I as I wanted to uh, but as I was trying to reaccess the market one thing that I had and did that proved to be very helpful was reaching out to a lot of people who gave all the right advice. So my former director at the American University of Beirut, the former director of the program, the person who uh, was the director when I was hired is uh, now uh, in, in the U.S. And she was able to not only help me with by looking at my CV and looking over my letter of interest and my diversity statement or teaching philosophy and helping with that, but also uh, in uh, soliciting the help of other people who were willing to do that for, for me as well. Um, so uh, basically, I worked in network, a support network. And I also looked at the material that I had as pieces of composition that we write and rewrite and rewrite until we get hired. And then we shouldn't stop rewriting them because who knows, right? <laughs> we might be on the market sometime uh, uh, soon or again. So I started working on these pieces of composition as works in progress and kept on updating them and fixing them and reworking them. And I realized early on uh, that uh, practice is great, not just for writing and rewriting and having other people look at your material, but also thinking about the different questions that you, you might be asked in an interview, uh, if you get one, because sometimes you don't hear back from the institution when, you, when you've applied, hearing that you have to apply to so many institutions and not just rely on applying to a few and just keeping your fingers crossed until you get hired. Know that you need to do the hard work uh, of applying and applying and applying as much as you can. So casting uh, a, a, you know, a wide net, I guess, is, is how you say it. Uh, so I, I tried all that. Um, and I also practiced my interview questions. I was also lucky to be advised by my advisor to do the, my proper research, the proper research required So uh, be before applying. So to know exactly what they're looking for, to look at their mission vision, uh, to see who works there, to see how you align with their, how your work aligns with theirs. But most importantly, is to capitalize on your your the differences the your strengths. Um, so uh, even though I was applying uh, everywhere, I was also careful to apply where I feel I can make a difference. Uh, mm. As somebody who has uh, a, a research interest in in business communication, I once came across this uh, study that shows that men apply to jobs if they meet around 70% of the criteria, whereas women apply to a job only if they meet 100% of the criteria. And in keeping that in mind, I try to see, even if, I, if it doesn't 100% 
uh, like I, my skills do not 100% fit what is required, I'm, I'm going to still apply. Uh, it didn't work. That's <laughs> 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 after an interview. But then the key is in getting that interview. You know, you hook them in, but then you have to do all the work of reeling them in. Um, so they they ask for an interview. They this means that they are interested. That's it. This is this is where the hard work begins. Uh, so in setting myself apart, I was able to somehow sell myself. And I know I'm I'm you know people uh, cringe when I use these terms, but it is after all uh, in a sense a it's an interview. It's somehow it's a business transaction in a sense. So you have you have to do this. You have to approach it from this perspective. It's not just relying on what you have. It's also in showing them how you can be of an added value uh, to them. Like first, when I first found out uh, that I was competing with all these people uh, for the job at Boston University, people who have been working, who have graduated from Brown or who were previously teaching at Harvard, or I felt really intimidated. Right. Uh, like, what is it about me? And how can I sell myself? And then I remember that my life experiences are so unique and what I bring to the table is, is very different. And uh, so I capitalized on that. And one thing I kept reminding myself is to constantly show them not just how, not, not, I have to say, you know, this ego is also can come into play and it can be very damaging and detrimental. Uh, but in showing them, uh, how I can fit in and at the same time bring in some needed change without, so it's in challenging, but not in, uh, um, uh, not in trying to bring, topple down whatever they have. I'm not trying to undo anything. I'm just trying to bring in some, some change. Uh, uh, and also in showing them that, you know, I was excited about joining the program, showing them this excitement, showing them how, how eager I was uh, to be part of this uh, team and to be a team player uh, were, were important. I hope this answers <laughs> the question. I wanted to cheer you on the entire <laughs> way because so many of the things that you said, I agree with. Things like building a support network is, it's critical. I mean, I mean, and obviously we're talking beyond dissertation committee, right? And oh, yeah. the word, the thing that stuck out to me first in that answer was luck. You know what I mean? Like that, that really is a big part of it. But I get a little frustrated with people who discount hard work as well. And so, uh, and put it all on luck, you know? Oh, um, no, yeah. Yeah, we were, worked hard. <laughs> we did. And uh, I think uh, the formula of success equals opportunity plus preparedness is key. Yes, you are waiting for this opportunity. Believing that you will get this opportunity where the element of luck is, is important. You know, having this faith that this will come. but. The other component is preparedness. Uh, if you're not prepared, uh, no matter how many opportunities you get, you're not going to succeed uh, because you're not prepared. And if you think you're going to prepare when you get the opportunity, that's a formula for failure. Yes, I agree. 
important advice for international candidates, but I think everyone can take something away from that answer. Uh, when I met you a few months ago now, can you believe it's already been three months or so? It was at Computers and Writing Conference at East Carolina University. A lot has changed for both of us since then, certainly. But what I was most interested in learning about your work was your Wikipedia fellowship, right? As a part of the Wikipedia, is it an initiative? Is that what it's called? It's a Four C's Wikipedia initiative. Four C's Wikipedia initiative. Two questions. How did you get three questions? How did you get involved with this work? Mm -hmm. Why is it important right now? And what projects are you working on that extend beyond the fellowship? Mm -hmm. How I got involved was that around a year ago, I went back to Indiana University of Pennsylvania to pick up my stuff uh, that was in storage because I <laughs> we were in uh, because of COVID I couldn't come back here and pick up my stuff, and I was very happy to see Dr. Matthew Vetter and meet up with him uh, and talk a little bit. And he said, Are, "Aren't you interested in applying to the Four C's Wikipedia Initiative?" And I said, "Yeah, I am interested, but..." Uh, the deadline is tomorrow. And he said, I'm sure you can whip something, put something together because you've already been involved in, in working on a Wikipedia project on your own. So, uh, and he said, send it my way. Uh, let me take a look at it before you apply it. Uh, you apply for it. And I, I did. And he said his, his only advice was, you know what? They would love a title for that. So if you can come up with a title for your project, they would love that. And And so... Uh, I did, and I got it. And the funny thing is that three uh, people from IUP, <laughs> three out of four people got the fellowship. We we're the first batch of fellows, four C's Wikipedia fellows. Uh, um, so three of us were from IUP and were Dr. Fetter's students. Uh, but I guess it's because he is so involved with Wikipedia and doing Wikipedia work and Wikipedia research and scholarship that his students end up, you know, it's, uh, it's, uh, it rubs off on his students. So we're, we're all uh, engaged in, in this. And uh, I was also very lucky because, uh, because Dr. Vetter had three students to mentor, uh, in a sense, um, Dr. Charles Bazerman stepped in and said, I'm going to take on one of your students. And so he picked me. Uh, and so I got a chance to work with him and to tell you a, sto a funny story. Um, the last time we were at the computers and writing conference in uh, Lansing, Michigan, uh, I happened to hop on a ride to the airport uh, with Karen Lunsford, Dr. Lunsford. Uh, yeah. And I got stuck at the airport for a few hours and we ended up you know, chatting through the hours about my work, about her work, and I, I was of course starstruck because I'm, I'm, I mean, she's, she's, uh, she's amazing, and I was so excited to be talking to her about my work. And she said, "You know who would be very interested in your work?" And I said, "Who?" She said, "Charles Bazerman, Chuck Bazerman." And I almost fell off my chair. And she said, "I'd love to introduce you to him one day." And of course, COVID hit. We never went back to computers and writing this did not materialize. And uh, 
And, and so when I got an email from the Four Seas Wikipedia uh, committee saying that uh, I'm going to be mentored by Dr. Charles Bezerhan, I was over the moon. It was the happiest moment of my life. I cried happy tears that day. And he is amazing. Uh, and I was so happy to work with him. Uh, on this initiative. So this is how I got involved. And I think the work that they're doing is outstanding. There's so much that we have done in this year. And I'm, I'm sure in, in the coming years, so much more will be done uh, in, in strengthening this, uh, the presence of composition on Wikipedia and, and vice versa as well. My project in specific is a very interesting project, Charles, because it started in 2019 when I was at this conference called the Digital Humanities uh, Conference that was organized that year by the American University of Beirut. And I bumped into the, uh, a couple of our librarians at the university and they told me they said can you believe that this author and this Lebanese author and this Lebanese author do not have Wikipedia pages about them I don't know how this conversation started but when they found out that I was teaching composition courses they said we've been trying to get more instructors and lecturers and professors involved and in working with us on a couple of projects and projects and they mentioned this and I said that's impossible how can these important Lebanese figures not have any articles about them and so I went and did my search and of course you know there was nothing about them and so I thought I need to do something about this this is unacceptable we can't not be on the Wikipedia map right uh and I talked to Dr. Vetter and I said uh how can I how can we fix this and he said what are you thinking about? I said, I'd love to involve my students in this. I want my students to be involved in maybe penning articles about uh, these prominent Lebanese uh, authors and notable Lebanese figures. And he said, well, let me put you in touch with Helene Blumenthal. And Dr. Blumenthal is the... Uh, um, is the con point was the point of contact for me at uh, Wikipedia Education, and at first she said, "Well, we've never worked with an institution outside of North America." I said, "Well, we are an American institution." She said, "Let me get back to you on that uh, to see if we can involve you in this or not." Uh, and of course, you know, uh, Charles, the the gender gap on Wikipedia is has been talked about over and over again and mm. it's been well documented uh, and it was funny that at first you know uh, Wikipedia education was a little bit hesitant because of so many different logistics and and politics and all that sure. so we they wanted to see if we can be involved and then they got back to us and said yes the American University of Beirut can be involved uh, and so we became the first institution outside of North America uh, to be involved in Wikipedia education. I set up a class uh, on Wikipedia education, gave my students a training on how to edit Wikipedia articles and create Wikipedia articles and post them online. And then uh, we did that. We produced six articles about notable Lebanese figures. 
And three months later, I got an email from uh, Wikipedia Education saying, congratulations, your articles have just had 14.9 million views. And so we were over the moon. And this continued to grow from 2019 until now, uh, where we have collaborated with so many different uh, entities at the university, outside the university, involved so many students. Uh, and uh, every semester it's become a, uh, or it became uh, uh, a, a staple where I would have this assignment where they, students would be involved in creating articles about Arab figures. And then, of course, you know, sometimes you get these uh, students who are from different countries and I would ask them to write about notable figures from their countries like uh, Afghanistan or uh, Korea or so we I've I've uh, tried to expand it to include uh, other people but primarily it's for uh, Arab uh, notable Arab figures and also in specific notable Arab women uh, because uh, I can't tell you how lacking it is uh, and, and, and of course, you know, it, it wasn't a smooth sail, uh, sailing because uh, Wikipedia was bringing down our articles the, the entire time saying, well, we tried to search for this person online to see what has been written about them and we found nothing. Uh, so I, we don't think that this person is notable enough to be written about. And I would say, well, that's the whole point of the project. Right. <laughs> we need to be writing about these people because we need to be... Uh, shedding light on who they are and what they've uh, contributed to the culture, to the literature, etc. And the other thing is uh, that uh, with, uh, with the notable Arab women, I mean, the gender gap is already very wide on Wikipedia, right. let alone when it comes to Arab women. Very underrepresented. Uh, you can find an article about uh, maybe a singer or a belly dancer or, or some, you know, uh, uh, actress, but you can't find articles or you couldn't find before articles about, uh, for example, one of the uh, first or the pioneers of the feminist movement, uh, movement in the Arab world, uh, who happens to be my great grand aunt <laughs> where I was able to put uh, an article together about her uh, and post it on Wikipedia. This project is so important and really even through the person the Wikipedia education folks or whoever was taking it down the response kind of eliminates the systemic issues, right, of yeah. representation in digital spaces. Oh, I have to say that the Wikipedia education uh, folks were super supportive, especially when we were trying to find ways uh, to keep uh, certain information up, uh, especially because the Arab culture relies on oral history, for example. And of course, Wikipedia would never accept this. So in collaboration with, uh, uh, with Wikipedia education, we were trying to find ways uh, to argue back and speak back to this, uh, um, in a sense, to this uh, uh, form of marginalization. Right. Because they do not consider oral history to be 
valid enough. It needs to be documented. It needs to be uh, put in writing somewhere and it need, needs to be online. So I was working with the AV libraries to try with the archives to try to find ways to document these and um, post them online so we can rely on them as sources. It was uh, amazing to see how much work this this uh, needed. And so the four C's Wikipedia and to go back to that provided me with so much support and talking uh, back uh, and in addressing some of these uh, challenges and in engaging people in this conversation, making them aware, just sometimes by making people aware of the difficulties that we, uh, that we face, it, it, make, it makes a difference. Uh, so more people knowing about this uh, means that more people will be speaking about this uh, in wider circles. And so through the Four Seas Wikipedia Initiative, I was able to present this project at various conferences and talk about it and talk about the different challenges and what can be done uh, to fix this um, in, in so many different ways. Uh, and uh, yeah, it, it was such such a pleasure. I felt empowered <laughs> by the yeah. Four Seas Wikipedia Initiative. Uh, so as I was doing this work and, and working on this project, uh, I, was, I was getting all the the tools and I was getting access, which I think is a key word for mm. people in the uh, outer circles uh, to be able to access not just the center, but in, get engaged in this conversation, uh, a very important conversation that needs to take place. Um, Let's look forward. The most academic thingy, academic-y thing to do, right? Look forward. What's next? <laughs> On your CV, there's a research publication titled Dissertating in the Midst of Multiple Crises, a collaborative autoethnography of two transnational doctoral students. Tell us a little bit about this co-written piece. How did it come to be? And what can readers expect when they engage with it? So as the world was going through COVID and struggling with that to no end, Lebanon, the country where I lived, was, had an extra set of challenges. We were faced by a, uh, first of all, there, there were, we had uh, a revolution then a complete meltdown of uh, or devaluation of the lira or the local currency. And to top it all off, we had the third largest explosion in history right. on August 4, 2020. And as a researcher, I found myself having to deal with trauma in addition to working a full-time job, taking care of a daughter, uh, and also working on my dissertation. I knew that my dissertation was my key out, that there was no other way to make it out but to finish my degree. And so I had, uh, I got an email immediately after the explosion 
from my advisor who said, what can I do to help? Are you okay? What can I do to help? And I said, just make sure I finish this as soon as possible. And he said, you got it. And he was true to his word. So every time I sent him a chapter, he would get back to me within days, something unheard of in academia. <laughs> uh, so I also took his advice to heart to collaborate with someone and have a network of uh, sorts. And it so happened that one of my colleagues from Indiana University of Pennsylvania was also teaching at a university in Lebanon before she also moved back to the US. So during that time, we found ourselves, because of the time difference you know, with, uh, with the US, we found ourselves uh, some in the same time zone and working somehow both of us were working full-time jobs and we were working on our dissertations. So we started checking in on each other every single day. And we found that this was really helping. So we started keeping track of what we were doing and keeping a log of our conversations, uh, sharing information, sharing feedback from our dissertation chairs, uh, discussing how to move forward on specific chapters, uh, discussing methodology, uh, and, and all of that. And we felt that by doing that, we were able to help each other finish in a record time, which was a year and a half for both of us. And we thought we needed to share this with others. And so we penned this chapter, went back and looked at our data, uh, what we have done, what conversations we did, how we were able to help and support one another. How did this end up being such a success story despite the multiple crises we were going through? And this is a success story when you're able to finish and defend and graduate and, um, uh, in such a short time. Uh, we wanted to share the success story with others. Uh, and as to women, uh, to women who are who live in a volatile country like Lebanon, uh, working full time and doing uh, finishing our PhDs, we felt there is something to be said there, and we needed to share this with uh, everybody else. And so we did, and the chapter should be coming out uh, very soon. We we're very excited about it. Um, so. Uh, Sometimes, you know, and, I, and by the way, we both don't like the word resilience. So we challenge that. We talk about it as not resilience. We talk about it as um, determination for sure. Uh, but it wasn't, uh, we weren't failing because of us. We, the system was failing us, but we were, we were able to overcome that and find strength and resolve. Um, last question what hopes do you have for you maybe even for your daughter about this new role this new journey at Boston University well Charles I just changed my entire life and moved halfway across the world to be here uh, I felt <laughs> I was telling a friend, I felt as I was leaving Beirut uh, a week ago, I felt like an American trying to escape uh, 
Tehran in the late 70s. <laughs> like, have you ever seen the movie Argo? It just felt really? like that. <laughs> I felt like <laughs> I was trying to um, run for my life uh, in a sense. Uh, Lebanon is in a bad place currently. And in coming here, uh, I feel not just, I feel this sense of rejuvenation, hope, uh, and everything that this country represents. I know that things have been difficult here as well. Politically, uh, things have been, uh, politics have been divisive. Uh, but I feel that this country to me represents hope uh, and it represents opportunity and a dream I can't have anywhere else. Um, when I was here back in May, before I went back to Lebanon, I was here for the conference, for the computers and writing conference. I felt the kind of community that I was missing, the support, the care, the interest. And I'm so happy to be back here. I'm so happy to be in Boston, so happy to be in the, um, uh, the academic mecca of the world yeah. uh, and in being able to just uh, find my voice and find myself and give back the society in a way where it is appreciated where my efforts are not lost uh, or underappreciated or dismissed uh, and I can tell you how happy I feel moving forward and in knowing that I'm going to be in the writing program at Boston University, a phenomenal program, uh, an award-winning program. Right. Yeah. And in, in having the support of this beautiful, large network of creative individuals, it feels like a dream come true. <laughs> I am living the American dream in, in this sense. <laughs> Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. Thank you, Charles. fascinating and important, particularly her work with Wikipedia and the amplification of Arab women and circulation of information about those women. 20 million views? Maybe this podcast will get 20 million downloads one day, but I doubt it. Abir, best of luck to you at BU. We can't wait to see what you do next if you would like to be featured on an episode of the big rhetorical podcast emerging scholar series it's a great way to talk about your work as you enter the job market or start a new position so reach out to us we're booking for season eight now are you using tbr in the classroom reach out to us and let us know how are you interested in booking Charles for a virtual engagement to chat with your classes about podcasting, 
reach out because we want to continue to build on the work we've done in this area in the past. I'll be back next week with another new episode. Until then, always be listening rhetorically. The Big Rhetorical Podcast is produced by Exalt Digital Media. Exalt Digital Media, not for profit. The Big Rhetorical Podcast was recorded on the land of multiple native nations, past and present. These original homelands are the territory of indigenous peoples who were largely dispossessed and removed. We specifically acknowledge the traditional stewardship of this land by the Wichita, Kickapoo, and Tawakoni peoples. Music for the Big Rhetorical Podcast is brought to you by DJ Lang, Stefa Helix, and Analog by Nature. <laughs>